Welcome everybody. It's um it's it's really my tremendous honor and pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Um, I'll tell you that that as we have folks that are interviewing with our fellowship program today, I'll tell you that the, the world is small. And um, I became friends with our speaker, Dr. Gabriel Boslett, um, through the world of, of pulmonary and critical care medicine, uh, through the Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Program Directors, and now consider Gabe one of my good friends. And we get to see each other a few times a year at meetings. Um, we can talk to each other, bounce ideas off of each other. And once you join this community, no matter where you go to train, um, you're part of this community. And um, it's, it's a friendship, right? And, and I think that that's really, really important. In fact, uh, we were at the APCC MPD meeting in Miami when, um, when a group of us got together and, and went for a run. And Gabe and I, um, I don't know if we were slower or what, but somehow we got a little bit separated from, I think we were slower, Gabe. Um, than, than Dude, my fellow. We, we can, none of these people were there. We were definitely faster. <laughs> um, and, and we got to bounce ideas off of each other and, and it was, it was really good. It was good for, for my heart. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's really my pleasure to introduce Gabe. So Gabe Boslett is an associate professor of clinical medicine at Indiana University. He's the fellowship director for the pulmonary critical care, um, fellowship program. He's also an assistant dean in the School of Medicine as um, the assistant dean for the Office of Faculty Affairs and Professional Development. And um, he was a former president of APCCMPD, highly active in both ATS and CHEST. Um, and as you're going to learn over the, the next hour, um, really active in, in really thinking about how we participate in policymaking and how we think about our roles as physicians. Um, and so the title of this talk is Public Health and Our Lane, Lessons I Learned from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Gabe, it is awesome to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, it's, it's awesome to be here. I'm going to try to rearrange my screen so that I can see people. Hold on. Thank you, Narav. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, and by here, I mean sitting in my office. Um, I'll get to go back and do a bronchoscopy as soon as this is done. I'm finishing two, two weeks of service today. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at GBoslet. I tweet a lot there. Uh, you can follow, I'm going to talk about the Hoosier COVID update page here as sort of part of my origin story um, on Facebook, although I don't do, I hate Facebook. Um, and then you could also check out goodtroubleindiana.org, and I'm going to talk about kind of how that came about. So um, I have no financial conflicts of interest. These are my interests. Um, these are my uh, my wife, Sarah, who's a pediatrician, my oldest son, Simon and Eli, who are 16, my um, daughter, Florence, who's 13, and my youngest son, Bram, who's eight. This was us in March in Bayou, France uh, for spring break. It was our first big trip since COVID came. Um, and it was absolutely wonderful. And I say this, I, I start with this because, um, you know, the story I'm going to tell um, is the fact that I'm very different than I was um, before the pandemic. I'm a completely different person, if I'm honest. Um, I could tell you very, very specific ways in which I'm different. I was a cradle Catholic. I left the Catholic Church. My wife and I both did um, and became Episcopalian for a whole host of reasons. I could give a whole other talk on that. Um, I stopped drinking um, almost a year ago. Exactly. Um, alcohol was a part of my life since I was a teenager. Um, that's no longer. I um, ran my first ultra marathon. Um, I decided to actually give up being fellowship director, um, which I've done for 13 years. And so honestly, I am almost um, 
unrecognizable from who I was prior to early 2020. And one of the major ways is sort of what I'm about to talk about. And that is that the pandemic really has made me conclude that we as physicians have a duty to engage in civic advocacy. And I'm going to talk about that. Um, I'm going to talk about how I came to that conclusion because prior to the pandemic, that wasn't even on my radar at all. And, and I'll be honest, I'm going to talk about politics. Um, I'm not going to talk about specific political parties or candidates necessarily. Um, I'm going to really talk about politics as it relates to public health and patient-centered care policies about patient-centered care. So the beginning of this origin story really is this, is um, this is the a graph of um, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in the state of Indiana um, since the beginning of the pandemic until earlier this year. Not, it's not fully up to date. It's probably four months, five months old. Um, and I have been immersed in this um, since the beginning. Um, I created um, a Facebook page called the Hoosier COVID Update page. And um, that's really the beginning of my, fo my foyer into sort of public health communication and being a public face of public health. And um, the story behind that is the story of my wife. Um, and the story of my wife's cancer. And rather than tell that story, I'm going to have her tell it um, via a, um, a radio interview that she and I did um, in early in the pandemic, May of 2020, which um, is forever ago. So there's Sarah, and I'll, I'll have her voice and my voice tell the story. Hopefully this is going to be loud enough. I found out I had cancer uh, January 15th of 2020. I had gone in for a mammogram only because my mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer the week before. Six days after my mom got her diagnosis, um, I got the same diagnosis. You know, as a spouse, it's a, it's a very, very helpless kind of place to be. Uh, and, you know, so, so my job sort of became to try as best as I could to wrangle our four kids, but then also go to her chemotherapy appointments. So I had already started chemotherapy. I was two rounds in when the coronavirus issue really came up. One of the worst things to me is that I have to go to all of these appointments, these horrible appointments by myself. The one thing I could do was be there for every step, and now you can't even do that. So yeah, it's just, it's a bad feeling. I think early on when coronavirus really hit here in Indiana, I was very concerned. But honestly, the the way that I was the most worried was I was worried about my husband going to the hospital and, and getting it there and bringing it home. I am a pulmonary and critical care physician at IU Health and Indiana University School of Medicine. In the United States, pulmonary doctors also are generally the doctors that take care of patients in the intensive care unit. My entire adult life education has sort of led to this. This is the probably the defining moment of intensive care medicine ever, period. Gabe and I have four kids. Our twins are 14, and then we have a 10-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And I remember Gabe and I having a conversation where I, you know, I, I had to be like, look, I, I'm already in a risky situation, and I already had to make sure my will was okay, and I still have surgery ahead of me. If we both are at risk, you know, if, if you get this coronavirus and get very sick and die and 
I have breast cancer, you know, then what? Being a physician, I think most see it as a calling. You don the armor and you go in to battle and, and what happens, happens. And it's not that I didn't have the armor, I did. It's just that bringing the enemy home would have been disastrous. What wound up happening is that my colleagues and my division chair were like, look, you're just not going to do the ICU. A large part of me wants to be there because this is what I've trained to do. It's like, you know, training for a marathon and then the week of getting sick and not being able to run, right? I mean, you've done all of this preparation. You just want to go. I feel guilty by the fact that others are putting themselves in harm's way to protect me and Sarah. I'm a general pediatrician. If I were able to, I would want to still be in the throes of all of this. And because I can't be there, um, I know that my partners can do it. I just have a, a sense of guilt that they have to not only do all of that, but also take care of my patients too. I knew my job was important, but I didn't realize that it was so central to my identity until I had to give it up. I'm taking two weeks off after Sarah's surgery to, to help her recovery. It's, it's my hope that she's doing well for multiple reasons. And it's, it's not the first reason. It's probably the third or fourth that I want to get back to working in the intensive care unit. But it is, that's a major reason that I want her to, her to get better so quickly. My immune system should improve. Um, and so I'm hopeful that later this summer I can go back to work. I hope that there's a day in a year or two when I look back and just can't believe that we lived through this. Whew. So that day's I now. I found out I had cancer. Um, January. Oops. Um, that's Sarah now. Uh, that's her in Paris on the Eiffel Tower with me. She's cancer-free. She is doing great. Um, the reason why I tell that story is because I'm a nervous individual. And so being kept out of the intensive care unit um, at a time when shit was hitting the fan and um, Things were crazy and no one really understood what was going on meant that I had a, I needed an outlet for a lot of this nervous energy that I had. Um, and so I love Twitter. I think it's a wonderful marketplace of ideas. I, I tweet daily. Um, but, and I would go to Twitter and I would scream, Hey, this is going to be really bad. And everyone else was screaming the same thing. It was a, it was a complete echo chamber. And so I had had a Facebook page, um, you know, years before that, I sort of shuddered around the 2016 election because I, I just didn't like what was happening. Um, and so I sort of tiptoed back onto Facebook and I was like, oh my gosh, this is where no one knows what's happening. Like you would go onto Facebook and it was like, everyone was like, you know, tweeting pictures from bars and, you know, just crazy stuff. And so I went to Twitter or to Facebook and um, I would... I started posting these graphs. So every day I would go to the Indiana State Department of Health and pull um, up the press release for that day that said the number of cases reported for the last 24 hours. And I literally made these graphs by myself and I would share them with a little vignette. Um, you know, here's where it's going. We're growing quickly, whatever it was, it was. And very quickly, people started sharing it. And so I, I, people started requesting Facebook friendship of me and I, I didn't want them seeing, you know, pictures of my vacations and my dogs and cats. And so I, I realized this needed a place. And so I started what's called the Hoosier COVID-19 update. Um, it's at Hoosier COVID. 
Um, and, you know, I, I started thinking, you know, gosh, maybe a couple of hundred people would want to sort of hear what's going on. Um, and I was like dead wrong. Like within a week, we had a thousand followers and within a month it was 10,000. And now it's like over 50,000 people who follow the Hoosier COVID update page. I would post every day, um, on just what was going on. This is a typical post, right? So you can just see, I, I give, it's the same, this date is the same every time. The cases, hospitalized deaths, reproductive rate, um, vaccine information, and then some commentary about where we are. And then I always ended with the weather for whatever reason. I people, I, I stopped doing that and then people started yelling at me. So I kept doing it again. And then I would have these graphs of really just the cases and hospitalizations, very simple. Um, and it became this really cool place. Um, where people would go for information. Um, I was very explicit about keeping politics out of it, despite the fact that, you know, politics determined a lot of kind of what happened. I was very apolitical. Um, And it became this place where people just, I mean, if you go there now, I posted yesterday or two days ago. um, And, you know, there's just like 50 comments that are like, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so helpful. And people asking questions and other people answering it. It just became this amazing online community of Indiana folks who wanted a place to go for, you know, non-spun information. And I was able to provide that because there was a complete vacuum um, of that. Um, and it's something I'm very proud of. I, I posted daily for like six months, what, but, you know, and then I posted three times a week. And then I posted weekly. And now I post about every other, every third week. Um, And every time I post now, there's a lot of people like, we miss you. And it's just, it's been really a a really cool place um, through the pandemic. Um, But, you know, and that was great. Um, I, I, I learned a lot about, you know, science, communicating science, about science communication. I learned a lot about cultivating a supportive uh, online space, which is relatively rare. Um, but, you know, for me, it wasn't enough. I'm going to be honest. It felt, it felt kind of hollow um, because it was, it felt like it was all happening in this sort of phantasmic world of social media, like nothing really concrete was happening out of it. I wasn't making money off of it, which was fine. I didn't want to make money off of it, but I was like, should I try to raise money for something? Like, how can I make this place have an effect in the real world so that, um, you know, this becomes more than just this kind of feel good place online. I, I just, I, I felt incomplete if I'm honest. And then in late 2021, um, the Indiana legislature um, proposed House Enrolled Act 1001. And let me just set the stage. I, I did some digging about Maryland um, in preparation for this, and, and you guys are a pretty blue state. Um, Indiana is not a pretty blue state. Indiana is a um, it's a purple state with a real me- terrible gerrymandering and, and um, turnout problem. Um, It's an extremely gerrymandered state to the point where the Republicans have a supermajority in both houses of the legislature, despite the fact that only about 55% of Hoosiers um, vote Republican every year. Um, They get about almost around 80% of the seats with just those 55% of votes. And so what that means is that we get really um, uh, 
extreme uh, conservative legislators. And so this was an extremely conservative um, piece of legislation that hit me right where it matters, frankly. So House Enrolled Act 1001 was an act that um, was proposed to prohibit businesses from requiring vaccination of their employees. Keep in mind that this was occurring right here, right at this giant upswing of cases and hospitalizations and deaths. At a time where the hospital that I was working at was opening ICU beds that we had never opened, even in the 2020 wave. And I got super pissed. And um, there was um, a public testimony um, session in the House chambers of the Indiana State House on December 16th of 2021. And I decided to go and to speak up. Um, and I'll set the stage. I'm gonna I'm gonna play my testimony here in a second, so you can see it. It's about four minutes long. Um, but if you can envision, we're in the in the House chambers. There are a hundred chairs for legislators in which average citizens are sitting. The House Rules Committee is sitting up at the front because they're the committee that's hearing this. It wasn't the Rules Committee; it was a different committee. I forget which one it was. But this room was full of, at the height of the pandemic, unmasked people in anti-vaccine shirts and four physicians wearing white coats and masks. And man, we were getting daggers thrown at us with people's eyes. Um, and um, the um, at one point before I testified, there was an eight hours worth of testimony. The, the lobbyist for the Indiana State Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics pulled me out of the room. He's like, hey, come here, let me talk to you. And so he pulled all four of us physicians out of the room. And he said, hey, I just, I want you to know this. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do this, but, you know, people back here asking for your names. There was just a fight out in the hallway. People are like asking who you are and what you're here for. I just want you to know this, you know, you know, just, you know, I, I don't want there to be any surprises. So two of the people left, two of the physicians left. But I was, I stayed, uh, I stayed to give testimony because to me it was important. And so here's my testimony. Maybe. Gabrielle Boslett with Lindsay Zimmerman on deck. My name is Gabriel Boslett. <clears throat> I'm an ICU physician at IU Health. I've lived in Indiana since 2007. And forgive me, I'm a bit nervous. Um, I, I speak in front of crowds pretty frequently, but this is considerably different than my usual crowd. I'll talk about what I know. Our hospitals were bursting. Part of the pandemic, the state of Indiana had 1,400 maximum ICU beds. We surged up when the, pan when the virus is coming in order to deal with what, was, with what we were going to be facing. Today, there are 1,884 people in ICU beds in Indiana, almost 40% above our usual maximum in April of 2020. And this is growing rapidly. We increased this since December 1st. We have 52 additional COVID-19 patients in ICU beds in the state of Indiana, which means that on Christmas Eve, if this continues, 
we will have more COVID-19 patients in ICU beds or in hospital beds in the state of Indiana than at any point in this pandemic. We are tired. We have been able to, to scale up ICU beds and ventilators, but we have not been able to scale up people. There are no more of me. There are no more nurses. In fact, we have less nurses now than we had in April of 2020. Because they're, they've left. They're exhausted. What does this mean? This means that yesterday I sat in on a meeting where we decided on contingency plans. Today, we opened an ICU that's been shuttered for a decade in order to care for nine more ICU patients at the hospital in which I work. It means I won't be home for Christmas, which is fine. I can deal with that. This is what I signed up for. What I didn't sign up for is seeing people die needlessly. How do I know that people are dying needlessly? Because vaccines work. How do I know that vaccines work? I'll tell you how I know vaccines work. This weekend, I rounded in the ICU. This is an ICU that normally holds 22 patients. We had 35. We can handle that. Of those 35 patients, 15 of them had COVID-19. One of those people were vaccinated with a single vaccination back in February. None of them were fully vaccinated. I can count on one hand of the hundreds of COVID-19 patients that I've cared for in ICUs, the number that have been vaccinated. So why should you get vaccinated? You should get vaccinated because you all know people who, despite their efforts at vaccinating, protecting themselves, cannot be protected. They are people who have who had transplants. They are people who have, who have autoimmune diseases. They are people like my wife who has cancer. These people can take the vaccine, but their immune system may not protect them. So what do they need? They need the rest of us to step up and protect them as well. I'm tired. And if I seem frustrated, I am. Because we've been doing this for almost two years. And we can't do it much longer. I just want this to end. I don't want to wear this mask anymore. I don't want to care for dying COVID-19 patients in my intensive care unit. The reason that I submitted to the committee a letter from, that has been signed by over 460 Hooser physicians was because we almost unanimously reject the language in this bill regarding vaccines. Why? Because the message this bill sends is that vaccines are not important. Vaccines are important. They're the only way to end this. I'm happy to answer any questions. So that was the first time that I'd spoken. Um, I, I'd never testified for uh, a House chamber or any governmental body um, before that time. But that was picked up by, um, I was on Rachel Maddow like the next week, um, talking about a guy who had um, this physician here who is just, anyways. Um, that, but that was cool. Being on Rachel Maddow was pretty cool. Um, but if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that, um, you know, my Twitter feed has changed dramatically, right? So I was mostly med ed at the beginning of the pandemic. And then as COVID came, I became a lot of COVID and that kind of waxed and wanes with, with the waves. And now, honestly, if you follow me, I post a lot about health, health policy and politics. I've changed dramatically. And part of that is because I realized as the pandemic 
slowed down and we had our the last legislative session here in Indiana, that public health is really controlled at the level of the state house. Whether you're in Indiana or Maryland, public health and what happens to you on a daily basis from a public health perspective is controlled at your state house. Indiana House Bill 1372 was a bill that would have allowed pharmacists to dispense ivermectin without a physician's prescription to patients with COVID-19. Crazy. House Bill 1369 passed, actually. That was a bill that allowed permitless carry of guns anywhere in the state of Indiana. You do not have to have a permit to carry a gun. And because of uh, um, background check loopholes, you don't have to pass a background check at all to open carry a gun in the state of Indiana. This is crazy. Our attorney general, our esteemed attorney general, a guy named Todd Rokita got involved and wrote a press release saying, look, if you're a physician, you can write ivermectin for anything that you want. Of course you can, Todd. It's FDA approved. He didn't have to do this. Todd Rokita is a far right, um, He's really an internet troll who happened to win an election, frankly. And I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't probably say that, but he is. And so I went on the record saying that this isn't okay. He, should, he didn't need to release this ivermectin thing. This, physicians didn't need to know this. We know how it works. So at the same time that people were being killed last summer all over uh, the United States, we had Buffalo, we had Uvalde, we passed the constitutional carry bill 1369. Then we had poor Caitlin Bernard, who was attacked by the very same attorney general, continues to be attacked by the very same attorney general for doing her job. And that leads us into Senate Bill 1, the first passed abortion ban in the United States after the Dobbs decision, which passed in a special session of the House of Rep, the Indiana House this summer. This is a very restrictive abortion ban that eliminates all abortions except for those that uh, would, uh, for fatal fetal anomalies up to 20 weeks and for rape and incest before 10 weeks. If the rape and incest or incest is, is reported after 10 weeks, you're out of luck. This bill was actually just stayed by a court um, yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. So as earlier this year went on and the summer went on, I started to realize all of these things, vaccine policy, gun gun safety policy, reproductive freedom policies, all end in the hospital. And they all pass through the Indiana State House. The fact is that public health policy is not just data. It's a combination of science and values. And Indiana has laid bare or ha- has really exposed what they value through the policies that they have put forth over the last six or eight months. And it made me realize that we need to become more involved in civic life. If we don't, we are going to continue in a red state like Indiana, to have massive problems with public health policies that are going to end in the hospital. The fact is that the last six months, the the clip that I showed you before, when I spoke to that committee was not easy. It was very uncomfortable. 
But those of us who value science, mind, and policy have got to do that work of helping to inform the public and our lawmakers. Otherwise, because look, no one else is going to do it. And so as I started, as I, I as I started to take things from the online social media world into the real world, right? I spoke at the state house and I started to think, okay, look, where can I go to do more of this work? Well, maybe I can go to the Indiana State Medical Association. And so I, I went to the Indiana State Medical Association and I joined. And I went to the convention about three weeks ago. And I realized that the Indiana State Medical Association does not represent patient interests. And, and, and part of the reason is that, and, and most people don't know this, but state medical associations and the American Medical Association are incorporated as 501c6s. And this gets a little wonky, but most public-facing uh, uh, nonprofits are incorporated as 501c3s. They serve the public. 501c6s do not serve the public. They serve, it's, they have a charter to serve their members and their members only. So the ISMA is terrific at advocating at the state house for things that benefit doctors and the business of medicine. They are not interested in getting involved in things like abortion rights and vaccine mandates and that sort of stuff. You guys have a state medical association. It is also incorporated as a 501c6. But, but I find that those in blue states tend to be more public health oriented than those in red states, which I find interesting. Interestingly, like the American Academy of Pediatrics and any state AAP uh, sections are actually 501c3s. So for me, I went to the ISMA looking for a place to do advocacy work and to sort of work on public health that didn't exist. And so I looked around the rest of the state of Indiana, and there is nothing that exists. So I sent a tweet. If you're a physician in Indiana and you're fed up with the political landscape, DM me as I'm getting some folks together for some good trouble. And we started what's called the Good Trouble Coalition. The Good Trouble Coalition um, is a group of and originally healthcare, uh, originally physicians, and then any healthcare workers. And now it's really any Hoosiers who have a stake in healthcare and public health. And the mission is to collaborate, to educate, empower, and facilitate political advocacy to improve life in Indiana in the areas of patient-centered care, public health, and social justice. And if I'm honest, the Good Trouble Coalition is just now getting started. We already have over um, uh, actually 1,200 members now. And the first thing we did was during the special session, we asked people to sign a letter. The Hoosier Healthcare Practitioners Open Letter Protect Access to Reproductive Care. There are over 2,000 physician and healthcare workers, over 70% of which are, which are physicians actually, um, who have signed this letter. We collected grassroots donations through a PAC that we know, the Better Indiana PAC, and we're able to collect over $20,000 to publish this on the first day of the session in eight major newspapers in the state of Indiana. This was the first major action by the Good Trouble Coalition. It won't be the last. We are just now incorporating as a 501c4 and I can talk about why we're doing that if there's any policy wonks um, that are interested in hearing about that. Um, but there's a lot more stuff to be done in the state of Indiana. Our governor just released a public health task force that really rips apart our public health system. And so we're going to be very active in advocating for, um, for good public health policies to come out of that in the next legislative session. 
Um, we are looking at hiring a legislative affairs consultant, otherwise otherwise known as a lobbyist, um, to help us within this next legislative session. We're just now kind of getting ramped up. So this is how it happened for me. Um, Andy asked, you know, she said she thought maybe she just didn't know me before uh, she came online as a program director. But no, I, I wasn't this person. Um, you just heard how I became this person. Um, and um, it's it takes up a lot of my time now. Um, but I, I really enjoy the work. So what should we be doing? So, look, the fact is you need to vote. That's first and foremost. You probably have a registration deadline coming up in the state of Indiana. It's October 11th. I should have looked up when it, when it is in the state of Maryland. If you're a new fellow in, in Maryland or you're, you're, you're new to the state, you should you should uh, register to vote. Um, you should not shy away from doing media or speaking to community groups. Um, I think, you know, the um, hidden curriculum of becoming a physician is one that sort of silences this part of our um, public persona. And I think that it shouldn't. Um, I think that we honestly have a duty to, to sort of do a little bit of civic minded stuff if that's, if that's the way that you're oriented. Volunteer for a science minded candidate. Give them money or time or both. Um, engage with, leg with legislators. Have meetings with them. Learn how to do that. It's a skill. Um, it comes with 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 um, repetition and experience. I would argue that even though your your state medical association is a five hundred one c six, you should still join and advocate for them to really take on patient centered issues rather than physician centered issues. And then pay attention to state level politics and consider joining some sort of an advocacy group, whether it's the Committee to Protect Healthcare, which looks at large uh, uh, federal battleground states. It's run by a guy named Rob Davidson out of, out of, out of um, uh, Michigan. Moms Demand, uh, the Moms Demand Group, which does gun safety. There's a whole host of places that you can give your time and money to kind of help them do their thing. I left a ton of time for questions. Um, and I'm happy to take any.